Hey everyone and welcome back for this week's episode. Now, for those of you who have listened but haven't yet joined the Facebook group, I have a bit of a favor to ask. If we can get this show to 1,000 listeners, I will release a separate mini-series podcast about a very well-known Iowa cold case, but you won't have to wait for weekly episodes. I will release the entire show all at once, and in order to do that, I need your help. Please share with anyone who may be interested. The families of the victims have been waiting years, some even decades, for answers, and they could get them if this show reaches the right people. Now, for today's episode, I will be covering one of the more prominent unsolved cases. Although there is quite a bit of media coverage surrounding the case, it is still unsolved and in Iowa, so I want to do my part. So, let's get started. In the early morning hours on a summer day in 1995 in Mason City, a local news anchor failed to show up for a morning news report. When she didn't show, her co-workers became concerned and contacted police. And when law enforcement reached the woman's apartment complex, they came across a disturbing scene. Even though the young woman's disappearance captivated the nation, almost 27 years later, her whereabouts are still unknown. This is the disappearance of Jody Hoosentrup. It was a little after 4 a.m. on June 27, 1995, and 27-year-old news anchor Jody Husentrout was late for work. Jody was one of the morning and noon news anchors for the KIMT CBS affiliate station in Mason City, Iowa. So when 4 a.m. came around and Jody hadn't shown up, her producer Amy Coons gave her a call at home. Jody answered, realized she had overslept, and told Amy that she would be right in. The radio station was about a five-minute drive from Jody's apartment, so after Amy got off the phone with Jody, she expected her to arrive in a short while. But 4.30 came and went, then 5 a.m., then 5.30, and by 6, Jody still hadn't come in, so Amy Coons had no choice but to fill in and cover Jody's spot on the morning show Daybreak from 6 to 7. Although it wasn't completely unusual for Jody to be late, It was a rare occasion, and she never missed her airtime. So after the morning show, Jody's co-workers decided to contact Mason City Police requesting a welfare check. The call came into police at approximately 7.13 a.m., about three hours after Amy had last talked to Jody. Within a few minutes of that call, police arrived on scene, and what they thought would be a simple explanation as to why Jody didn't make it to work took a very dark turn almost immediately. Officers went up to Jody's apartment and knocked on the door and waited, but instead of being greeted by Jody, they got silence. They then left the building and walked back to the parking lot of the apartment and noticed Jody's red 1991 Mazda Miata was still there. As they approached the car, they came across an odd scene. They had found different women's items scattered along the ground near Jody's car. Police had found a hairdryer, red high-heeled shoes, a slightly bent car key, some hairspray, some papers, and jewelry. When they inspected the car, they found that the mirror on the driver's side door of Jody's car was bent forward towards the front bumper. 
and there were drag marks on the ground near the car as well. People knew about these things being found and reported on them, but the photos had not been released by Mason City Police Department until 2005. If you want to take a look at these photos, I will post them on the Facebook page. Shortly after finding these items, police knew that they belonged to Jody and that she was gone, but not willingly. The evidence at the scene gave police a clear picture that they were dealing with an abduction. One of the things that has been falsely reported over the years was that there was DNA found at the scene, which is not the case. But police have confirmed that they were able to collect a partial palm print off of Jody's car, and they also found a single strand of hair. But police have never revealed if the hair they found had a root attached to make it possible to match to a DNA sample. During the investigation, police had made their way to the news station to speak with Jody's colleagues and initially asked them to not divulge any information regarding what they found. But later on that same day during a news broadcast at KIMT, news anchors had to do the unthinkable and report that one of their own was missing. A search was conducted that same day, which included dogs and about 20 state and local officers. They had searched about half a mile radius around the apartment complex and the Winnebago River, which was on the south side of Jody's apartment building. But police came up with no new clues or leads. Based on interviews with friends and co-workers, police started to piece together the last few days of events leading up to Jody's disappearance. Jody had spent the previous weekend from Friday till Sunday, about two hours and 45 minutes away in Iowa City with friends. There, she spent time doing some water skiing and what any other single woman would, bar hopping. She returned home Sunday and wrote in her journal that evening that she had a great weekend and there didn't seem to be anything out of the ordinary. On Monday the 26th, Jody went to work and had planned to participate in a Chamber of Commerce golf tournament for KIMT at the Mason City Country Club. She had gone golfing, which ended up getting rained out. So she went home, changed her clothes, and went back to the country club for dinner. Her golf partners and other people at the country club remembered her leaving around 8 p.m. From there, the assumption was that Jody went home. Police were able to confirm that Jody made a long-distance phone call to her friend, Kelly, from her apartment at 8.24 p.m. that night. Kelly wasn't home, but Jody had spoken with Kelly's husband. To this day, we don't know how long that phone call lasted, only the time the call was made. Once police gained access to Jody's apartment, they found a few things that seemed to be out of place. There had been two wine glasses found on the counter next to the sink in the kitchen, so no one knows if Jody had company that Monday night, and it hasn't been revealed by police if they had taken those glasses into evidence. And another piece of puzzling information, which still baffles people to this day, is the toilet seat in Jody's apartment was up, which led many people to speculate whether or not she not only had company, but a male visitor in her apartment. It certainly could have been a possibility that Jody had been ill or a police officer investigating could have used the facilities, but no officers have ever come forward claiming to have used Jody's bathroom while inside her apartment, and no one had come forward claiming they were in her apartment on the recent days leading up to her disappearance. Aside from the inconsistencies within her apartment, there didn't appear to be any signs of a struggle and police strongly believed whatever happened to Jody that morning was confined to the parking lot. As police canvassed the area and talked to neighbors, they had found that some people had described hearing a scream around 4.30 a.m. that morning, but no one looked outside to see what was happening, 
and no one called it into police. After seeing the abduction on the news, an eyewitness named Randy Linderman came forward to police to report that he had seen a light-colored, possibly white van in Jody's apartment complex parking lot that morning, with its lights on around 3.50 a.m. while he was driving to work. He described the van as having been parked next to the building Jody lived in, but not in the parking space. Police then released a statement to the public that they were on the lookout for a white or light-colored 1980s Ford Econoline van. Over many years in the course of the investigation, police looked into many vans, but none of those leads ever brought in more information to try to locate the missing news anchor. To give you perspective, I pulled up Jody's apartment building on Google Earth to give you an idea of the parking lot and the entrance she used in relation to where her car was parked. You can view those on the Facebook page. Jody lived on the second floor of the Key Apartments in Building C on Kentucky Avenue. The building entrance that Jody would have used leaving her apartment that morning was about 20 feet from her car. So realistically, the time it would take for Jody that morning to leave the building and get into her car would have been maybe a minute or less. This seemed to imply that someone was waiting for her. It didn't appear to be a crime of opportunity. And if that is the case, it brings to light an even more chilling revelation. Whoever was waiting for Jody likely knew her schedule and knew she was running late, yet still waited at least an extra hour for her to leave her apartment that day. Would it seem more likely that Jody had a stalker who was willing to wait for her that day, or someone she knew and the attempt to answer that question remains a mystery to this day? There had been quite a bit of speculation in regards to whether or not Jody had a stalker. Jody, being in the public eye and sharing pieces of her life to interact with her audience, made her a little more vulnerable than most people. According to police records, in October of 1994, approximately nine months before Jody disappeared, she had been jogging and became concerned enough that she had called police to report that someone in a newer, small white truck had been following her. Jody's sister said it shook her up quite a bit, and when Jody called her mom regarding the incident, she was in tears. An interview with Jody's golf partners from the dinner on June 26th also revealed that she had made a comment that she had been receiving harassing phone calls and had mentioned she was planning on changing her phone number. But as far as we know, she never reported any harassing calls to any of her friends or family. Friends of Jody also confirmed that within the couple of months before Jody disappeared, she had been taking self-defense classes. So maybe Jody was a little more worried about her personal safety than people realized and decided to more or less deal with it on her own. If she did have a stalker, it wasn't difficult to locate her because Jody's address and her phone number were listed in the phone book and anyone who watched the news knew where she worked. In a recent 2020 special by ABC News titled Gone at Dawn, investigative journalist Maria Oz had asked Mason City Police Department for copies of any police records filed from September of 1994 to August of 1995 for reports of assaults and reports of stalking near the key apartments. And what was revealed was a report filed on June 28, 1995, the day after Jody vanished. A woman had filed a complaint that she was being followed by someone in a small white truck, eerily similar to the report Jody had filed just nine months earlier. 
So in all likelihood, it could have been someone Jody didn't know who studied her habits, her routine, and waited for the perfect time to take her. But there are quite a few people who don't agree and think it was someone she knew. Now, if any of you listening know anything about this case, then you are probably somewhat familiar with this next name, John Van Sice. John Van Sice and Jody had become friends about seven months before Jody's abduction. During the crime scene analysis, John Van Sice had entered the parking lot in a red truck, got out, approached police, and told them that he was the last person to see Jody alive. He told police that the previous evening Jody had come over to his place to watch a video of a surprise birthday party that he and other friends of Jody's had put on for her just two weekends earlier. Now, John Van Sice was a little older than Jody, over 20 years older, in fact, and many people found that to be an odd friendship. As far as we know, he had met Jody at the key apartments where he had lived, but he had moved out two months prior to her abduction. Jody's friends all have mixed feelings about John. Some said that he gave off a bad vibe and they felt uncomfortable around him, while others said quite the opposite. Jody always said that she and John had more of a father-daughter type of relationship, and John would say the same thing. But some people felt that it was pretty obvious that John had a crush on Jody and that he had ulterior motives to their friendship. John had done a TV interview shortly after Jody's disappearance in which he said that Jody meant so much to him that he named his boat after her, and during the interview, he had been referring to Jody in the past tense even though she had only been missing at that point for about 48 hours. Needless to say, this interview raised a few eyebrows and put him on police's radar right away. One thing that people who have followed Jody's case for years and even decades have pointed out is that John's timeline on Monday evening doesn't quite add up. He said after Jody left the country club from her dinner, she went straight to his house to watch the video and then went home where she had made the long distance phone call but retracing the steps shows that to be highly unlikely. Jody left the country club at 8 p.m., and from there it was a 10-minute drive from the country club to where John lived. And although the police have never revealed the full contents of the video to the public, they have stated that it was a 15-minute video. Then it would have been about a 5-minute drive from John's residence to Jody's. So that timeline doesn't fit. That would mean Jody had no spare time at all, but still wouldn't have even gotten home until after 8.30 p.m. at the earliest. Now, John's alibi on the day of Jody's disappearance couldn't really be accounted for either, but to be fair, most people at 4.30 in the morning probably aren't going to have a good alibi. John had claimed that he was sleeping, and then he had gone out for a morning walk with a friend, LaDonna Woodford. LaDonna had called John around 6.30 a.m., and she could tell that she had woken him up. She had asked if he still wanted to go for a morning walk, and they ended up meeting at a different location than normal. During their walk, LaDonna used a payphone to call another friend who was supposed to be meeting them and let that person know where they would be walking because they weren't on their normal route that day. So technically, if Jody was presumed to have been abducted at 4.30, that left two hours from when Jody went missing until the time that LaDonna called John. LaDonna said John's demeanor wasn't out of the ordinary, and he didn't seem tense or nervous or anything along those lines. Police have confirmed that they had given John Van Sice a polygraph on two different occasions, but will not release the results of those polygraph tests. However, John has come out publicly claiming he had passed both tests. 
1997, there had been a grand jury held for the arrest of John Van Sice in Jody's disappearance, but they didn't return an indictment. John has stated publicly several times that he had nothing to do with Jody's disappearance and since 2010 had stopped talking to the press and police, which, to play devil's advocate, I don't blame him. John has had a looming cloud of suspicion over his head for almost 27 years, and if he is innocent, then it is very unfortunate to live a life knowing that hundreds, if not thousands of people think you were involved in killing someone. But at the same time, it is very understandable as to why police had and still have him as a person of interest in the case. And of course, we don't know what evidence the police still have, which hasn't been released. Even though John stopped talking, he wasn't dropped as a person of interest in the case. Police came back to John in 2017 with a court order for DNA and prints. They also revealed a search warrant for GPS tracking on the vehicles that John owned at the time, which were different from the vehicles he had owned back in 95. As of today, those results all remain sealed, and police have never revealed the results of the DNA or prints collected either. Just recently, it has been reported that John's health is declining due to an onset of Alzheimer's, so if he is in any way responsible, time may be running out. Jody's relationships were obviously questioned early on in the investigation, but family and friends all agreed that the number one thing that Jody had a commitment to was her career, which didn't leave her much time for any serious relationships. She had dated on occasion, but no one serious enough that would make them a person of interest in the case. Jody's family had her legally declared dead in 2001 for the purpose of handling her estate, but that never meant they stopped looking for answers or trying to find her and it didn't stop the public either. In 2003, two men, Gary Peterson and Josh Benson, started a website, findjody.com. They couldn't let her case die off, and being journalists themselves felt a connection to her. They went back, interviewed many people involved in the case, and set up their website for people to leave tips and leads. One of the people that Gary Peterson had re-interviewed was a neighbor by the name of Joan Horhan, who had lived across the hall from Jody. When Gary interviewed Joan, she claimed that sometime between 8 and 8.30 p.m. on the night of June 26th, she had heard a man banging on Jody's door for several minutes before giving up and leaving. But Joan was also questioned by police on June 29th of 1995, and apparently that isn't the story she told police. But we don't know exactly what she had told police back in 95, other than the fact that her statements weren't the same. The rumor mill was not quiet in Mason City and people started to speculate that if Jody didn't have a stalker and wasn't taken by someone she knew, then they thought her disappearance may have been linked to things that Jody was reporting on, more specifically, a rapidly growing drug problem in the Midwest, including Mason City. Based on several interviews of Jody's co-workers, including her bosses, she was a news anchor, not an investigative reporter, and there wasn't any link between the two. Police had searched her home and desk at work, and there was no evidence that Jody had been doing any type of investigative work on the side. Jody had no desire to be an investigative journalist. She wanted to be the welcoming face that people saw and deliver the breaking news for the day. To kind of tie into the investigative theory was a theory which gained momentum about the death of Bill Pruin in April of 1995. 
Bill was a friendly acquaintance of Jody's, and after his death, it was ruled a suicide. Most people didn't buy that based on his actions up to his death and how he died, so people started to speculate that Jody was looking into his death, thinking he may have been murdered, and likely Jody had gotten too close to finding something out. It is also important to bring up Bill Pruin's death because as of today, Bill Pruin is listed on iowacoldcases.org as a possible homicide. Now, Bill Pruin had died from a gunshot wound to the chest, and one year after his death, his manner of death was changed from suicide to undetermined. After many years of speculation, Bill's daughters hired a private investigator out of Minnesota who was able to determine that it would have been impossible for Bill's death to be a suicide but also impossible that his death was a homicide. So their conclusion was that his death was most likely accidental and is no way linked to Jody's disappearance. So that seems to be a theory that can be put to rest and sympathies go out to the Pruin family. Police started to look at the possibilities of serial predators that lived near or around Mason City during the time Jody vanished. And one of the names that surfaced was a man named Thomas Corscadden. At the time of Jody's disappearance, Corscadden lived one hour away from Mason City and was speculated to be involved with numerous sexual assaults from the 1970s all the way up to the early 2000s. And in 1995, Corscadden owned and drove a white van. According to police records in an interrogation of Corscadden in 1996, when they brought up Mason City, Iowa, Corscadden smiled and said the name Jody Hoosentrup which is enough right there to give you chills. He then made the comment that she was dead, but he denied any involvement in the case. Police had enough probable cause to get a search warrant for Corscadden's fingerprints and palm prints, but then later ruled him out in 2004. Another name that has surfaced was a man named Tony Jackson. In 1997, Tony Jackson was tied to five different rapes in Minnesota in five different cities in the Twin Cities area which was about two and a half hours north of Mason City. Jackson was later convicted of four of the five rapes, but upon further investigation, Jackson had lived in Mason City in 1995 and was only two blocks away from KIMT news station. At the time of Jody's disappearance, Jackson was in, we'll say, a tumultuous relationship with his then-girlfriend, and she had broken up with him and moved out on June 22nd of 1995. Four days later, on June 26th, Jackson purchased a car for $7,000, but two weeks later had to return the vehicle because the check written for the car had bounced. During the time Jackson had the car, he had put over 500 miles on it. The car was later resold, and the woman who had purchased it was contacted by law enforcement. Law enforcement took and inspected the vehicle and sent in any findings to the state crime lab in Iowa. But as far as we know, those results produced nothing. In 1998, a jailhouse informant by the name of Dennis Guff had come forward saying that Jackson had recited a rap lyric to him, which seemed to imply someone who was dead was in a town called Tiffin, Iowa, which was about 161 miles away from Mason City. The informant also said that Jackson had told him he had abducted and murdered an anchorwoman. Investigative journalist Caroline Lowe followed up on this and found an abandoned farm containing a silo, which a silo was referenced to in the rap lyric also. 
She pulled resources and was able to bring in three cadaver dogs in which two of the three had alerted to human remains inside the silo. As they investigated inside the silo, bones were collected and sent off for testing to the state crime lab in Iowa, but the results of that test concluded they were animal bones. Mason City Police said they questioned Tony Jackson, and as of 1999, they were comfortable with ruling him out as a suspect in the case. Now, if you remember what I had touched base on earlier regarding Jody's water skiing trip and that she had written in her personal journal that there didn't seem to be any issues going on at the time, the reason we know that is on June 22, 2008, almost 13 years to the day after Jody vanished, law enforcement was shocked to see a news article in the Globe Gazette titled Jody's Journal. The newspaper reported they had anonymously received copies of the 84 pages of Jody's personal journal entries, which had been placed into evidence and had not been released to the public. The copies were sent in a large envelope with no return address. As police investigated, they had found out that a former police chief who had retired must have accidentally taken the copies home with him while cleaning out his office, and his wife had found those journal entries and sent them to the Gazette. Once this information came to light, police claimed that no crime was committed, so no charges were filed, and the wife will not speak with anyone as to why she released those journal entries. Several reporters and journalists have attempted to reach out to her throughout the years, and every time she hangs up on them. From what we know about the journal entries that the public does have access to, there was nothing negative Jody wrote about John Van Sice or any problems or concerns in her life either. Things kind of went quiet in Jody's case for a while, that is until January 1st of 2020. A group of volunteers who run findjody.com over the years have taken donations received and funded billboards around Mason City, and on January 1st, one of them had been defaced with spray paint. On the billboard, someone had spray-painted the name of a longtime former Mason City police investigator, along with the words, Machine Shed. Mason City police claimed they investigated the incident and came to the conclusion that it was just a cruel prank with no relation to the case itself. According to the Fine Jody team, the billboard was fixed shortly after the incident occurred, and the incident had been investigated for approximately four days before police came forward saying there was no link. As of today, if there are other persons of interest in Jody's disappearance, the police are keeping it tight-lipped. But new leads and tips are still coming in all the time. In the 2020 special by ABC News that aired in 2020, investigator Terrence Prochaska, who as of the airing was the investigator working Jody's abduction, and he said, quote, We have a handful of good stuff, but we just need that one, that one lead, that one tip to get us over the hill. There may still be additional information and evidence that police have, which hasn't been made public. And with the new wave of genetic testing solving cold cases from decades ago, we can only hope that DNA testing can be done to find the person who took Jody and give her family answers. Jody's mom didn't make it to see that day, but her older sister Joanne still holds out hope that the case will be solved. to mention that back in 2019, a team of people got together, including one of the men who started FindJody.com back in 2003, and they started the Find Jody podcast, hosted by Scott Fuller. 
Now, they are an incredible team of people who really give the whole story and bring a lot of light to who Jody was as a person, coworker, friend, daughter, and sister. And their goal is to make sure that they put all the facts in Jody's case out to the public to bring in credible leads because false information isn't going to help find her. Many of these people have spent literally years following leads and tips, conducting interviews, and doing what they can to keep Jody's name in the spotlight. And I don't want to take anything away from their hard work. So if you want to hear more about the case, please make sure to go and check out their podcast as well. Their website also accepts anonymous tips. If someone feels they have valuable information regarding the case, but doesn't want to reveal who they are. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Jody Hoosentrude, you can also contact the Mason City Police at 641-421-3001 or the IDCI at 515-725-6010. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Tune in next week for a new episode. Secrets in the Cornfield is an Anchor original. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. You can find Secrets in the Cornfield I Was Unsolved on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In an effort to provide answers for the families and a voice for the victims, please be sure to follow, rate the show, and share with friends and family. Also, don't forget, you can join the Facebook page by searching Secrets in the Cornfield podcast and join the group.